This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We're going to the archives this week on Radio Parallax. A man who's been in the news a great deal of late, Victor Boot, is someone we had a conversation about 14 years ago. Los Angeles Times reporter Stephen Brown had written a book about the international arms dealer Victor Boot. And we spoke with him just after Boot had been arrested by Thai authorities. If it strikes you as odd that they're going to trade an international arms dealer for a women's basketball player... We'd have to say we find that kind of odd, too. Although Miss Roman points out, I, I have never seen her three-pointer. At any rate, we're going to play the interview in its entirety and have a few things to say about what developed afterwards when we're done. Numerous wars have erupted around the globe in the last 15 years. Africa has seen bloody conflicts in Liberia, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, Congo, Sudan, and Angola. Strife in Afghanistan led to a Taliban government which harbored an extranational group of fundamentalist Islamists called Al-Qaeda. From a base provided by the Taliban, Al-Qaeda launched the September 11th attacks leading to a war in Afghanistan which continues today. The United States launched an attack on Iraq which appears to have no end in sight. One thing each of these conflicts has in common is that large amounts of armaments and materiel were brought in to supply the fighting. Above all others, one man's been involved in performing that service in the countries mentioned for anyone who's willing to pay for it. He is international arms dealer Victor Boot, considered the world's preeminent shipper of military hardware. Armaments are a highly lucrative business if one can deliver the goods. In the past decade and a half, this Russian emerged from the wreck of the Soviet Union to build an efficient network to do just that. In the process, he's made hundreds of millions of dollars. Victor Boot succeeded with the help of friends in high places. Armed suppliers in Eastern Europe, ruthless dictators in Africa, and in some instances protectors in the Bush administration and Putin regime. Douglas Farah and Stephen Braun wrote a seminal article about him in the November-December issue of Foreign Policy. They have expanded this article into a book titled Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Makes War Possible. We are pleased to be joined by co-author Stephen Braun. Stephen Braun is a national correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. He's shared in the Pulitzer Prize and Overseas Press Club International Reporting Award. Stephen Braun, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thanks for having me. Victor Boot remains a shadowy figure, but in recent years he's sort of been shamed into giving some television and radio interviews. Um, what do we know about his background and about those who helped get him a start? Unfortunately, it's not a lot uh, out there, but we've been able to pick up some more. He likes it that way. Uh, Boot, uh, for a long time... Uh, kept to himself. Uh, he's only uh, surfaced to defend himself when he feels uh, under attack. But what we do know about him is he's, uh, he's in his early 40s, at least according to his passports, was born, believed to, we believe he was born in Tajikistan, uh, one of the uh, uh, Central Asian uh, uh, former satellites of, of the Soviet Union. He, uh, in the uh, late 1980s, uh, spent some time as a uh, young man, promising student at the uh, Moscow Academy of Languages. Uh, that's known among our intelligence officials as a feeder academy for the, uh, uh, or at the time, for the uh, uh, Soviet uh, intelligence services. Unclear whether he was a member of those, uh, either of those agencies, but he was, uh, I mean, even he acknowledges he was, uh, he came out of the Soviet military. 
there were reports that he was based in Africa for a period, but uh, by the early 1990s, when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed and was replaced by the struggling Russian Federation, he uh, was one of the first uh, Russians to to really uh, adapt very quickly to the, the desire to you know, to start capitalism. He's a guy of vision and smarts. Uh, I mean, very gifted. I mean, knows uh, four or five languages and speaks them fluently: English, obviously Russian, uh, French, Portuguese, which obviously helped him in the African continent. And but what he what he did was he fused together two worlds in, in Russia that uh, that were paramount uh, for his success in the arms business. One obviously was uh, the arms inventories themselves. At the end of the Cold War. Russia didn't have a lot to offer the outside world, but one of the things they did right off the bat was this huge inventory of uh, Eastern Bloc weapons. The other thing that uh, that Boot was very, very uh, far-thinking in, in, in using was when the Soviet Union disbanded, uh, again, the, the, the collapse of both military and civilian governments led uh, to hundreds and hundreds of old cargo plans just sort of stranded in airports just across uh, Russia. They fell into different hands, sometimes the military, sometimes local officials, sometimes factory owners. But what uh, Boot did very quickly was begin to snap them up, and that gave him the capability, uh, when his business picked up, to be uh, uh, you know, an all-purpose, uh, one-stop shopping of the arms trade. Not only did he source the arms, uh, make the deals possible, but he moved the equipment also. You, uh, you write that by the late uh, 1990s, Boot began to actually alter the landscape of modern war. You're referring in the book to how um, Rwandan influence was being spread into the Congo via Boot's cargo planes. Uh, how did he come to wield so much influence, particularly in Africa, as a non-state actor? Well, again, one of the things that, that he was able to do was he was able to speak the language. Uh, French was, was critical. Portuguese was critical in, in, in places like Angola. So uh, right off the bat, uh, he was able to come in and, and talk with uh, leaders one to one. But that's the other part is that he cemented a lot of personal relationships. Uh, he went hunting with with a number of the uh, warlords and, and even some of the dictators that he met, and they came to rely on him. And the other thing was that it, this may be the arms business, but one of the things that that, that he he did was he he proved to be very reliable. Um, if he told you he was going to get uh, a, a shipment to uh, point B or to a, to a jungle landing strip somewhere in, in Africa, it got there, uh, maybe a little bit late, uh, but it always got there. His clients uh, came to depend on him, came to rely on him. Um, again, that, that set him apart from a number of his uh, other lesser uh, rivals in the arms business. Yes, he really is in many respects just the quintessential businessman. I did laugh in the book when you compared it to Milo Minderbinder, the fictional character in Catch-22. Yeah, Milo Minderbinder was... Uh, <laughs> Catch-22, it was uh, he, he was sort of this uh, war profiteer who he would uh, uh, fill up the returning bombers that were American bombers that were returning from bombing runs in Italy with everything from eggs to Egyptian cotton, uh, which would just drive the, the pilots crazy because they'd go into their plane and find them filled with all this material, but then they couldn't find things like parachutes. It wasn't quite that bad, but what his operation pioneered was uh, wherever he would fly, he'd make a profit. So, for example, if he flew into... Uh, Kisangani and dropped off uh, a load of arms there, he might fly out with uh, blood diamonds, you know, contraband diamonds. He was always making sure that, 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 uh, that he made money on each of these circuits, and so his planes were welcome wherever they, uh, wherever they ended up. 
Your book has quite a few dramatic revelations, kind of things that raised eyebrows. One that really struck me was that in 1999, you revealed that Boot was offering free arms to Liberian rebels if they would just cross over the border into Sierra Leone and secure some mines for him and his partners. And you note that when you're coaxing armies to invade other countries with your free arms, you really are a player on the world stage. Yeah, that's where he stepped over the line. It's difficult to imagine that there are lines to cross when one is involved in an arms business that that leads to the deaths of thousands. But what he did in 1999 was particularly heinous, I guess, in that by cooking up a scheme with uh, Charles Taylor of Liberia and the the rebels of uh, of the RUF who were who were Taylor's uh, surrogates uh, trying to topple the government of Sierra Leone. Uh, what Boot was doing was literally getting involved in aggressive foreign policy, and, and what the attempt was was to take over a group of mines. The attack didn't work, and in a way, it, it, it sort of led to uh, both uh, the RUFs and Boot's undoing in, in Africa for a while, because uh, they tried the attack, it didn't work, and in the process of the chaos, they ended up uh, tr- uh, kidnapping a group of uh, UN peacekeepers, which then led to Britain's intervention. We should perhaps interject just a happy aside, a small note that uh, on this weekend, at least they, they, they did have a, an election in Sierra Leone, so things at least finally have turned around there. Uh, for, for, the, for the moment, we hope. Right, yeah. right. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the failures of the Bush administration to deal with transnational entities. And, 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 and in Merchant of Death, you confirmed that in the waning Clinton years, at least some effort was underway to deal with rogue organizations like, like Boots and like Al-Qaeda. Um, if Al-Qaeda maybe was the foremost concern... At that time, Boot was maybe second on the list. Uh, but what, what became of that attitude when the Bush team took over? I guess we all have to be careful in, in, in trying to figure out who are, who are the heroes or who are not. But, but you have to give a lot of credit, at least towards the end of the Clinton administration. There was a, a small group of uh, national security, intelligence, and diplomatic folks who finally resolved uh, that uh, Boot had to be dealt with. Uh, they all were working with Richard Clark, who uh, obviously became a thorn in the side of the Bush administration later on. But Clark uh, was somewhat of a, of, a, of a national security Cassandra, and uh, he was very concerned about national security threats. And under him, he had a, a national security deputy by the name of Lee Woloski, who was a Russian expert. And Woloski began putting together this, this effort to try to either uh, find a law, either in, uh, I mean, a, a criminal case, either in, in perhaps Belgium or in uh, South Africa, which they could uh, they basically put up a arrest charge against Boot, and then the United States would, would try to extradite it. In essence, it was sort of an early version of rendition. And so they were trying to get this going when the 2000 election hit, and that sort of brought that to a standstill. Uh, when the Bush folks came in, uh, you do have to give some credit. I mean, they were not at all as interested in, uh, and concerned about transnational threats as the Clinton folks were towards the end of their, their uh, tenure. But uh, Condoleezza Rice was briefed on uh, Boot, uh, and uh, she she let them run out the string for a while, and they they, they continued. But it, it was a process that, that that took a lot of a lot of time, and there was a lot of uh, suspicion on both sides. The uh, South Africans weren't sure whether they had a case. The Belgians weren't sure whether they, they wanted to share their their in, the internal uh, arrangements of their of the case against Boot uh, that they had going with the Americans. The Americans were were very cherry of uh, sharing their intelligence secrets, and so it didn't get going. And finally, September 11th hit, and all of this got swept away. The problem was, ultimately, when, when it came down to it, was that Bush administration uh, really wanted to get uh, Putin on their side in the war against terror, and they didn't want to do anything in the early days 
that would in any way alienate him. And going after Victor Boot, who uh, for years and years and years had a sort of a semi-protection from Soviet official, I mean, from Russian officialdom, uh, would have potentially gotten in the way. And so they simply never raised the issue. Uh, there was a chance early on when uh, Bush and Putin met to do that, and uh, officials decided it's just better not to do it. And it's a shame because... Uh, in the end, uh, terror became as much a priority, terrorism and, and the logistics of terror became as much a priority for Putin uh, later on as it has, uh, has been for us. We're speaking with Stephen Braun, co-author of Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Makes War Possible. Stephen, can we talk about the Taliban connection to Victor Boot and where al-Qaeda fits into that, especially as regards Osama bin Laden? Uh, it's, it's, it's a somewhat uh, convoluted process, but, but, but here it is, uh, I guess, as, as clearly as I can give it. When Victor Boot went into business in early 1992, started uh, uh, selling arms, one of his first customers was the uh, new government in Afghanistan, uh, which, uh, and the defense minister of that government was a man by the name of Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was later become a hero of, of uh, he was assassinated just prior to September 11th, but... Uh, his forces became uh, one of the linchpins in the American effort to unseat the Taliban after September 11th. But anyway, Boot uh, supplied this early uh, Afghan government. Surprisingly, this is just right after the, you know, the Soviet Union had uh, packed up and left. Uh, and that was somewhat of a surprise for somebody to, to dabble in that uh, uh, failed relationship so early on. Uh, but it worked for about four or five years, and Boot became a, a real mainstay of the, this Afghan government. But suddenly in 1996, things changed. The Taliban uh, forced down one of his planes, took one of his crews hostage for a year. He tried to negotiate with Russian officials to get them out. It didn't seem to work until they suddenly had a miraculous escape. In the years since, though, uh, intelligence officials here and, and in Western Europe became very suspicious that it was a staged escape and they think that uh, it was concerns that Boot had reached an accommodation with the Taliban. And we now know from both our reporting and from what the government has learned and other agencies have learned that, um, in fact, starting in 1998, Boot's planes began flying in arms uh, for the Taliban into Afghanistan. And additionally, uh, the Boot organization and some of its allied air firms sold as many as 12 cargo planes to the Taliban which were in some cases disguised as commercial airliners and also used to both fly around everything from guns to militant operatives, uh, in some cases drugs, cash, you name it. Again, here's a guy who is not necessarily a terrorist ideologue, but he goes to the highest bidder, and in that case it can be a very destabilizing thing as well. Here's a guy who was an enabler for both the Taliban and for al-Qaeda. And the way in which he aided al-Qaeda, he claims to never have done business with either Taliban or al-Qaeda. But we do know now from defense officials that, you know, the Taliban had these massive arms caches, AK-47s, all, you know, uh, weapons, uh, bullets, uh, clips, you name it. Uh, and we know that uh, there was a fairly informal sharing arrangement in which al-Qaeda would get some of the weapons, sometimes the Taliban would use them. We know that, for example, around Kandahar Airport, which is where Boots planes landed, uh, American soldiers after the war with Afghanistan found uh, huge caches of uh, uh, guns that were shared by both Taliban and al-Qaeda. So it's not a far stretch to imagine that ultimately, even if it was indirect, uh, Boots' organization and, and his, his arms shipments likely uh, aided al-Qaeda as well.
Well, by, by the year 2000, the British Foreign Office named Boot uh, when it was clear that British troops were going to assist uh, the UN peacekeepers in Sierra Leone. They might face arms that Boot was shipping in. Um, what happened then, and maybe more importantly, what didn't happen? What happened in 2000 was, again, we were beginning to press, uh, the United States was beginning to press for, for uh, you know, against him. Uh, the British also had concerns in Sierra Leone, and they sent in peacekeepers uh, into Sierra Leone to, to, uh, to, uh, to ensure, you know, uh, peace and safety there. Uh, but as, as all of that was happening, it, it made it uh, tougher for Boot to do business. His deliveries likely slowed down some, and he uh, re- sort of resettled by that point, had resettled in Sharjah, which was a, an emirate in the United Arab Emirates. Um, so there was a period between, not so much 2000, but really 2000, slightly around September 11th and uh, afterwards, where his operations seemed to go underground for a bit, and then they suddenly reemerged, as we now know, in 2003 in Iraq. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. Uh, by this time, Victor Boot's pretty well known. There's even some stories in the press about him. But in spite of his uh, bad reputation, he manages to make himself an air carrier for the U.S. military and thus goes from being a target of uh, anti-terrorism investigators to a receiver of U.S. taxpayer dollars. We need to talk about that. Well, that's, that's the most incredible part of, of, the, of, the, of, of the progress of his organization, if you will. Uh, we now know that uh, after September 11th, one of his close allies, a man by the name of Sanjivan Rupra, put a proposal forth to a uh, U.S. intelligence agent suggesting that both, uh, that Boot, essentially, Boot's organization, could put together a huge arms uh, package that would enable the Northern Alliance to defeat al-Qaeda. This is particularly uh, stunning in view of only, you know, just uh, a year before that he was working with the other side. Uh, and, and it's unclear whether we accepted this arrangement or not. Um, uh, there are Western intelligence officials who believe that there is evidence that, uh, in fact, we did. Uh, and one of uh, another of Boots' uh, longtime accomplices uh, has suggested that uh, there were several flights made with U.S. personnel on them. Again, unclear whether we can verify that. But what we do know is, suddenly in, in uh, mid 2003, right after the invasion of Iraq, his planes began landing in Baghdad. Now, this is a pretty remarkable thing. Remember, this is a high security area right after a war. Here we suddenly have airplanes that are flying goods for the United States Army, for the United States Marines, Coalition of Provisional Authority for private contractors like KBR, DynCorp, FedEx. Um, and it, ultimately, his planes flew hundreds and hundreds of flights between 2003 and 2006. They flew arms. In fact, uh, if, if you've been following, uh, the, uh, re- there was a recent GAO report that estimated something like 30% of the arms, that, uh, American-controlled arms that were shipped into the Iraqi uh, defense forces in uh, Iraq in recent years cannot be accounted for. Well, intriguingly, there were four flights of arms that went from uh, Bosnia, where U.S.-controlled uh, seized shipments there of arms, to Baghdad in 2004. Fascinatingly, those planes were planes linked to Victor Boot. Uh, the fascinating question is that uh, when uh, uh, Amnesty International tried to follow the, the uh, trail of those flights, uh, when they contacted American authorities, uh, they couldn't confirm that the planes had arrived in Baghdad. So it's, it's, it's conceivable that it was a pa- paperwork error, but it's also conceivable that those arms shipments were uh, diverted somewhere else. 
perhaps to another country, perhaps to Iraqi insurgents. We just don't know. Um, but the fact that, again, Boot was involved raised all these questions. And what became particularly intriguing was all of this was going on at the same time that the U.S. Treasury Department was trying to freeze his assets and to um, make it illegal to do business with him. So here we had this schizophrenic situation where, on the one hand, Treasury is trying to shut him down, and on the other hand, the U.S. Defense Department is paying him millions upon millions of U.S. taxpayer dollars. It was just the height of, of either incompetence at best or at worst, uh, you know, just uh, using a bad guy uh, that sh we should never have uh, made uh, contact with. We're speaking with Stephen Braun, co-author of Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Makes War Possible. Reading the Washington Post this last weekend, the story that's been, been sort of percolating for a while about losing track of 190,000 AK-47s and pistols given to the Iraqi security forces. Uh, uh, Boots' name didn't appear in the article. I mean, having just read your book, I was, I was up on it, but uh, again, he seems to be sort of under the radar. Well, that's the thing. Uh, part of the, the, the I think, the, the mindset here is that we are so focused on the actors themselves, the non-state actors, if you will. I mean, Al-Qaeda being the, the, you know, the preeminent version of that. But, you know, and, and, and it's understandable that, you know, our first line of defense, we have to worry about, you know, the sort of the radical uh, extremist organizations that are targeting us. But these organizations, in many cases, can't do what they do without, you know, these underlying logistics operations. Uh, that's not to say that Boot is helping them all, but he's helping some of them. Uh, in fact, you know, we now know that uh, uh, his planes popped up in, uh, uh, in, in Mogadishu just last summer, where they were uh, dropping off uh, uh, weapons uh, on behalf of the Islamic militant courts uh, in Somalia that we then had to uh, aid uh, the Ethiopian government to sweeping out of, uh, out of power. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's something we should have learned before we ever got entangled with them in the first place. And, and the problem is when you do business with folks like this, it, it, it then undercuts your, your arguments uh, later on when they uh, turn to uh, aiding the other side. I mean, it makes it much more difficult at that point to then say, this is a bad guy, we need to do something about him. Well, you can't very much, you know, very well say that if, in fact, you've already enriched them with millions to do your bidding only a few years earlier. Do we, do we have any reason to suspect that he is no longer flying cargo, as he, as he now claims? You mean in, in Iraq for us? Well, or anywhere. <laughs> well, no. We, as I said, we now know, you know, we know that he flew into uh, you know, Somalia last summer. Uh, we, 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 we've heard reports that he was sighted in, uh, in Beirut uh, just before the uh, conflict between Hezbollah and Israel. So he's still doing what he's doing. I mean, we, 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 we know... He's, he's based in Moscow these days, but we know that he continues to travel. We, we, we hear, you know, sporadic reports that his organization is still at work in Africa. I mean, it, it ebbs and flows. Remember, I mean, when conflicts, uh, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, in Sierra Leone, I mean, that was a, a fertile killing ground for him that, that no longer exists. Well, that's, that's less work for him. But as long as there are places where there are conflict, and we know in Saharan Africa that uh, it's, it's very fertile ground for him, we know in Afghanistan it potentially is fertile ground. We don't know if he's at work there, but, but uh, you know, if it's not him, it's, it's somebody else. And, and at some point we have, to, we have to figure out how to deal not only with, uh, with uh, the destabilizing uh, terror groups, but we have to deal with the logistics of war as well. Well, you, many people have pointed out to you that, well, if they got rid of Boot, there's 
a lot of people waiting to take his place, but you pointed out that his, his vertical integration and his really organizational abilities would make his shoes tough to fill. Yeah, I, I mean, it's the fact that he has, the, you know, at his, at his uh, beck and call, he has this massive fleet of, of Antonovs. Uh, it's, it's conceivable that somebody would try to replicate that. But uh, it'd be difficult at this point, uh, because when he put together a lot of those planes, uh, it was at a point where uh, they came very cheaply, uh, there wasn't a lot of scrutiny. Uh, it would be much harder for somebody to do that today. Um, and, uh, I mean, but the problem is, is that even though we've, we've tightened the net on him, I mean, for example, in Eastern Europe, the uh, European Union has made it harder for a number of his air companies to fly in there because uh, they've, they've hit them with a number of security uh, restrictions. But the shape-shifting nature of his organization makes it difficult to, uh, to bring down. I mean, he changes, his, his companies change names with uh, regularity, planes switch tail numbers with regularity. So it's very, very difficult to, to, uh, to, to go after these, these entities without a, a really concerted, uh, uniform effort that, that uh, links nations. Um, you can't even, you know, as I said, even our Treasury Department has, has made a valiant effort to do it, but uh, it's, it's something that doesn't work unless you have an international uh, mindset to do it. Boot is, if nothing else, a very smart guy. I sort of had to laugh at your descriptions of his interviews on, on Moscow radio. Of course, in one case, uh, you know, he, them denying he was in the country while he's live on the air. But uh, his, his stick out the fact that, well, I, I'm just being picked on because I'm Russian. And Boot does personify what an amoral, corrupt organization can accomplish, and he does come out of the wreckage of the Soviet Union. But what about people who would, would ask, is he so different from Halliburton, which contracts to supply the means of waging war and charges a steep price to do so? Well, he makes that argument in a way, uh, and, 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 it's, and it's a cogent argument uh, it, to, up to a point. He doesn't compare himself to Halliburton. Uh, he doesn't, uh, I think, think that, uh, or maybe he does think that comparison privately, but, but for example, his brother compared them, so he compared Boot and his organization to taxi drivers. And basically, you know, taxi driver doesn't, as they said, taxi driver doesn't know necessarily they don't ask who it is that they're taking or what the cargo is they just get them in the cabin and drive them and as, as his brother once said you know if we happen to be carrying a nuclear bomb you know well that's that's the, that's the brakes but you know they're basically the attitude is they are transporters and uh you know if, if something untoward happens in the delivery of cargo they have no no blame for it but of course you know what we've learned from u.n investigations intelligence investigations is that you know, this is all done with a wink and a nod, uh, you know. I mean, they have a point in that, you know, governments bear, uh, you know, the onus of this as well. So it's, uh, you know, there's, there's enough blame to go around here. Well, final question. You note in the book again and again how publicity has curtailed its operations and sometimes one of the few things the, out there that was doing that. By publishing Merchant of Death, do you hope that raising his profile as you're doing, that uh, this will help curtail him? Yeah, I mean, there's, that, that's part of it. I mean, the main thing is that, 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 that one hopes that, number one, you, that, that, that people do get a sense of that this is how the world works, that, that uh, these guns just don't show up on their own, uh, that, that organizations like Boots uh, have been able to exist because, you know, the world has fallen short in, 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 in trying to, uh, to tighten up standards, uh, you know, in this, in this new day and age. Um, it's also a case study of a fascinating man and... and uh, 
you know, how he puts this together and how he's been able to elude uh, capture for so long. I mean, he's a, in many ways a very fascinating individual. It's, it's, uh, it's a shame in the end that, uh, that his smarts have basically gone to a, to a business that uh, in the end uh, has killed thousands. The book is Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Makes War Possible. We've been speaking with co-author Stephen Braun. It's a fascinating read, and we think uh, we think listeners ought to get themselves a copy. Stephen Braun, we thank you. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Appreciate your having me. To this day, we're still a little bit curious about what Boots' connections were to the then Russian government or current Russian government. But we can tell you that after he got arrested in Bangkok, the U.S. Department of Justice charged him with conspiracy to provide material support or resources to a designated foreign terrorist organization, also of conspiring to kill Americans conspiring to kill American officers or employers, and conspiring to acquire and use an anti-aircraft missile. Additional charges got filed against him in February of 2010, including illegal purchases of aircraft, wire fraud, and money laundering. Victor Boot got convicted by a jury in a court in Manhattan in November of 2011. We should note that in February of 2009, members of the U.S. Congress signed a letter to Attorney General Holder and Secretary of State Clinton expressing their wish that the Boot extradition from Thailand remain a top priority. So that's how they got him to Manhattan. Boot got sentenced in April of 2012 to 25 years in prison, which was the minimum sentence for conspiring to sell weapons to a U.S.-designated foreign terrorist group. In September of 2013, the second U.S. Court of Appeals in New York upheld his conviction after rejecting his contention that he'd been the victim of a vindictive prosecution, that there was no legitimate law enforcement reason to prosecute him. Boot had claimed that if the standards that worked against him were applied to everyone, all American gun shop owners who were sending arms and ending up killing Americans would be in prison. At any rate, it appears that the swap is going to go through, and we need to take a short break. Let's do so. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.